Hey, it's Mark. The healthcare industry, like the business world at large, has increasingly prioritized the tenets of diversity, equity, and inclusion in recent years. For life science companies, that means not only increasing diversity within their own ranks, but boosting it within the very foundation of our industry, clinical research. Quita Highsmith, Genentech's first chief diversity officer, has been on the forefront of both. After a career spent mostly on the commercial side of pharma, she accepted the CDO role at Genentech in 2020. And at MMM, we're proud to say that we knew her when. Back in 2017, when Quita was head of advocacy and alliances at the South San Francisco Biotech, MMM named her a member of its Hall of Femme, back when the program was called that. Then in 2020, as newly minted CDO, she appeared on this podcast. Quita had launched an effort several years prior to COVID to address barriers toward inclusion and shared findings from her own research about how to encourage those from marginalized groups and the medically disenfranchised to trust the system again and to feel comfortable volunteering for studies and by extension to take the COVID vaccines. The other big D&I trend playing out in the industry is the changing face of the biopharma workforce. Some, like Genentech, have not only enacted meaningful initiatives to drive diversity across the organization, but have publicly documented their progress along the way. This week, we're welcoming Quita back to the podcast. My colleague Jack O'Brien sat down with her to discuss the biotech's third annual diversity and inclusion report, the key findings for pharma leaders, and what the company's doing to make systemic improvements mainstream across the industry. And Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hi, Mark. Today, I'll talk about one pandemic-era benefit that is getting an extension, even as the COVID-19 public health emergency is officially over. Plus, Biden has nominated a new head of the National Institutes of Health. And as loyal listeners of the podcast are no doubt aware, a couple of weeks ago, Jack blew up the social media segment and is now counting down three big healthcare-related trends dominating the social sphere. This week, we're talking about Bo Jackson's months-long bout with the hiccups. A woman is using AI to charge people for company. And free births are proliferating on TikTok. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hi there, and welcome to the MMM Podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I am the digital editor at MMM. I'm pleased to be joined today by a very special guest, Quita Highsmith. VP and Chief Diversity Officer at Genentech. Quita, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jack. And I really appreciate medical marketing media um, inviting us to share our story. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to having kind of a wide ranging conversation here, but I know the basis of our conversation is the third annual DNI report that Genentech just released. And I wanted to start there. If you can just kind of give us a high level overview for the pharma marketers and leaders in our audience, you know, what were some of the biggest takeaways from the report? Yeah, I mean, uh, at the end of March, we released our third annual DNI report, really representing kind of the midway point on our road to achieving our 2025 commitments that, that we had made. And I'm really excited because we truly deepened our investments in diversity and inclusion. We have three pillars to our strategy, advancing inclusive research and health equity, fostering belonging and transforming society. And in every single category, if we look at advancing inclusive research and health equity, we nearly doubled the size of our site alliance. Um, and now we've added sites, Montefiore in the Bronx. We've added a site in Virginia Beach, Norfolk. We've added a site in Chicago. And so it just, it, I'm really excited about the impact for patients in these communities 
where we will be able to engage and work with them on inclusive research. And then when we think about foster belonging, we now have the highest representation of Black, African-American, Hispanic, Latinx employees in Genentech's history. And then we think about our third category, Transform Society. We had made a stake in the ground to spend $1 billion with diverse suppliers and we came in in 2022 at $805 million. So I'm super excited about the progress. So, Quita, I appreciate you going through some of the high-level things that Genentech is doing on the DNI front. And I want to pull on the last thread where you talked about the value of diverse suppliers. Can you talk about how that factors into the DNI conversation? I feel like it sometimes gets overlooked by players in the industry. Yeah, I mean, this is one that I'm really excited about because how can we expect to truly innovate if we don't have access to the full universe of supplier solutions available to us? And we're committed to creating real economic opportunities for historically underrepresented communities. And I think for us, when we think about innovation, we want to have uh, fresh perspectives and nimble approaches to help accelerate better outcomes for the patient communities that we serve, as well as, I think for us, when we started um, down this journey to engage with more suppliers from diverse backgrounds, whether that's women, veteran, LGBTQ+, uh, people of color, disabled, we really thought broadly about how do we want to engage. And so one of the things that we've done is we ask all of our suppliers in which we have an RF uh, request for a proposal, over 500,000, to uh, answer a series of questions. And that can be like, what awards have you won? How diverse will the team from your company um, that wants to work with Genentech, how diverse will they be? And we have found that there were companies that did not really have diversity and, in and inclusion remit, but because they wanted to do business with Genentech, um, really developed a set of standards for their own company. If this program has been so successful. We've decided to reduce that RFP request for proposal um, from 500,000 to 100,000 so we can engage more suppliers in this work. And maybe bring in some of those kind of smaller businesses, as I imagine, Absolutely. too, that maybe are on the same level. Absolutely. Super exciting. I am curious, too. I One of the things that stuck out to me in the report was obviously Genentech had the highest representation of black and African-American and Hispanic Latinx employees in the company's history and also had a cohort of interns yeah. and postdocs that also represent a high level of diversity. Can you talk about kind of the personnel aspect to everything? I know that the labor market's kind of in flux and people are trying to make sure that they retain talent, but you're focusing not only on retaining talent, but also having a diverse group of talented individuals. Absolutely. I mean, we're excited about the progress, especially, um, and I'm excited for the next generation, right? The interns and the postdocs. We've seen basically a doubling of the postdocs that are Black or Hispanic since we started this in 2020. And so like really that future generation wanting to engage and be a part of Genentech. And then, you know, I'll be really transparent here. Um, before we kind of had some goals around um, and some aspirations around engaging our Black and Hispanic communities, we were seeing um, retention challenges. And now what we have done 
um, is we've put a number of programs in place because part of growing your number is two things. One, you have to bring in more people and then you have to prevent um, people from leaving, right? So you want to, you know, you want people to stay at the firm. And, and so we've put in a couple of programs that I'm really excited about. One is called G Lead. And it's a program for more senior uh, Blacks and Hispanic leaders in the company. And it's a program that we've started with Columbia. And the feedback that we've gotten from the directors that have participated in this program has been phenomenal. Because this is not about fixing people to meet a certain standard. This is about elevating who you already are. Um, and so we've been excited about that program. We also have another program, which I think we might be one of the few companies that has a program um, really targeted to our Asian leaders within the organization. One of the things that we have found is we're based in California, San Francisco. We have a large Asian population workforce, but that's not necessarily translating into leadership. And so we've dedicated a program um, specifically to engage our leadership, our Asian leadership population um, so that they can take that jump into advanced management. And and we're, it was so successful that we're going to be expanding this program into 2023. That sounds very exciting. And it kind of touches on what you talked about, too, in terms of not only just having people working for the company, but also in leadership, management, director positions, too, which I know is equally important from some of the leaders that I speak with. I am curious, just one more question about your work at Genentech, and I want to get your thoughts on some broader industry-related topics around D&I. But I've reported in the past about Future Lab Plus. One of the other highlights in the report was obviously starting that up last year and the $40 million that went to health equity and diversity in STEM. Just kind of curious about where, you know, kind of going to you talk about your hope in the, the future generation yeah. where Genentech's presence is there and kind of making a committed effort to be on the cutting edge there. Yeah, this program, Future Lab, is one of the things that we're, you know, most proud of because we're engaging with kindergarten to uh, high school students and, and really thinking about how do we engage and encourage these students to think about biology and biotech and really, you know, so that we can excite this next generation to want to be able to be in biotech, to be in chemistry, to be in computational science, where these are the future jobs of our industry and the future of science. And, and so we are very excited about this $10 million expansion in South San Francisco uh, for Future Lab. The other thing that we are excited about is the program that we've got with San Francisco State University. And what is really special about this program? Uh, we've been working with San Francisco State for many years, but we recently uh, provided a $10.5 million grant to them to support 100 underrepresented and low-income undergraduate and master's students um, in their master's and PhD programs. And I think what's what's unique and important about this is that these students are from the general student population applicant pool, right? This is not an, an enriched group of high GPA students. Um, our students that were recruited from top schools or universities, 
These are students that might be first generation college students, students that are working jobs, um, students that may not have the highest GPA, but they have a strong interest and desire in science. And we're trying to uplift this population of students so they can move into master's programs. They can move into PhD programs and surround sound them so that they are successful. And I'm happy to report that 96% of these students are moving into the next phase of their program, whether that's into the master's program or into PhDs. It's very encouraging to hear you talk about kind of allowing it to be opportunities for, you know, children of all backgrounds to be able to find their way into the pharma and biotech industry. And I guess that's kind of where I wanted to pivot the conversation a little bit. Obviously, you're doing a lot of uh, very important work at Genentech. But when you look at the broader industry, especially over the past few years where DNI has been top of mind for organizations, what is your assessment about where the industry stands? Is there still room for improvement? Is there progress that's been made? I'm, I'm just curious your thoughts yeah. on that. You know, I think for us, um, we're not looking for perfection. And I don't think anybody in this industry is, but we are looking for progress. Um, and we firmly believe that underrepresented, underserved, and thinking more broadly about the patient population that is going to have access to our medications, that we want to do everything that we can um, to kind of like foster that these partnerships, because we know that if we do this right, we help all the patients right? It's not just going to be for a limited few, but but thinking about broadly the efforts around diversity and inclusion to ensure that at, for us, we're the founders, we consider ourselves the founders of the biotech industry, and we want to be leaders in this work. And, and we're not going to tiptoe around the issues at hand. I think COVID-19 um, exposed health inequities and and I think it helped accelerate a conversation around DNI in the workplace. And we have to continue to move forward. And I don't think there is any kind of magic or quick solution to addressing the impacts of health inequities. Um, and, and so it's going to take more than a handful of years to really um, drive some of these issues. And so our journey ahead is a long one, but I'm excited about it. And for us, we are not waiting around for anyone or anything. We want to be um, a leader in transforming our industry and society with very steady, thoughtful investments and partnerships. And to that end, I wanted to ask you maybe when you look at some of the more sticky challenges related to health equity and DNI, are there any that come to mind? Obviously, it's not like, you know, just as the COVID emergency is going away that these issues and conversations and initiatives that have popped up over the past couple of years, you know, go away with it. They're still going to be there and they still need to be addressed. Yeah. I think one of the areas that I'm most concerned about. Um, as far as health equity is artificial intelligence. And the reason that I'm concerned about that is because when I started with a colleague, Advancing Inclusive Research in 2017, 
And when we were looking at the genome-wide sequencing data back then, 88% of the genomic material available to scientists was of European ancestry. Fast forward, I just looked at the year-end 2022 GWAS data. It is now 91% of European ancestry. And if we think about the algorithms that companies use um, to test molecules, if we think about the algorithms that hospitals might be using for cancer patients, those algorithms are not very diverse. And so the system may be building in more and more where we're not having diversity. And so the algorithms that are available to scientists may not be able to be the best response uh, for patients of color. And so I am concerned that um, we must, that clinical research is not going to benefit all groups equally. And, and we have to do more to diversify our data sets. We know patients uh, of color do want to participate. There's a myth that patients of color don't want to participate in clinical research. But, but we as an industry, we have to prove ourselves to be trustworthy and then people will participate. And so like that's one area of concern that I do have. It's interesting to hear you bring up that point because I feel like there have been a lot of studies that have come out recently pointing to that lack of diversity in clinical trials and then people saying, well, you know, where does it come from? What can we do? And, and you're kind of putting out a call to action that there has to be more done from the pharma leader level to fix that issue. That's exactly right. We have to prove ourselves trustworthy and then people will trust us because people do understand that if they have cancer or they have a serious disease, that oftentimes clinical trials are their best course of therapy. But we're also finding the data shows that patients of color are oftentimes not asked to participate and if they were asked, they would agree. And so the opportunity to ensure that we have more underrepresented groups involved in clinical research, because again, when we go back to that genomic data set, if Africa is the oldest genome in the world, there is yet, there is less than 1% of the database of the genomic material available is of African descent. And so we potentially could be missing serious signals on how to resolve some of our greatest challenges when it comes to different diseases. Absolutely. It's an important thing that any sort of any organization, whether in pharma or biotech, needs to put on their priority list. Uh, I really have appreciated having you on the show here, Quita, and I wanted to just kind of leave it up to you for the last question in terms of any sort of maybe parting advice or encouragement you give to some of the leaders in our audience as they go ahead with their DNI initiatives or if they want to start up their own in the months and years to come, if there's anything that you would impart to them uh, that could be useful. The one thing that I always say to audiences is, it's a quote uh, from Mae Jemison, who was the first black female um, astronaut in outer space. And, and her quote is, the future never just happened. It was created. And so we have an opportunity to create a new future, one that embraces the increasingly diverse world around us. And I would encourage everyone to think about what is the future that they want to have for the patients that we serve? 
I think it's a very encouraging and, and simple message that I hope that people really take to heart and, and really act on too. So again, I appreciate you being on the show here. Really appreciate the work that you've done, Genentech. And hopefully there's another opportunity for a conversation down the line to see what else is in store. Thanks so much, Jack. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. The COVID-19 public health emergency is officially over, but some pandemic-era benefits, specifically telehealth flexibilities, have a little more time before they see their end. The Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, said last week it will extend the pandemic-era loosened restrictions on telehealth, which have given patients more flexibility in accessing certain controlled medications. Those will extend for another six months through November. Before the pandemic, patients would have to get at least one in-person visit with their provider to receive a prescription for a controlled medication, including drugs for ADHD, benzos for anxiety, or medications for opioid use disorder. With those restrictions loosened, patients were able to get their medication from home via telehealth. They will still be able to until November, when the DEA will likely implement new rules and a return to stricter restrictions, such as requiring in-person doctor visits for prescriptions again. DEA Administrator Ann Milgram said in a statement that, quote, We recognize the importance of telemedicine in providing Americans with access to needed medications, and we have decided to extend the current flexibilities while we work to find a way forward to give Americans that access with appropriate safeguards. This week, President Biden also nominated Dr. Monica Bertanoli as head of the National Institutes of Health after 17 months of searching for a new lead for the agency. Dr. Francis Collins left the position in December 2021 at a time when plenty of public health officials were experiencing COVID-19 burnout. The White House did not provide a timeline on when the Senate would vote for Bertanoli's confirmation. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Social media, Instagram, Instagram TikTok, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey there, Mark. So we've got three stories this week. And before we start with my segment, I did want to give a quick shout out to Jamie Foxx, who I don't know if people have been paying much attention to, but the Academy Award winning actor has been dealing with a bit of a health scare in recent weeks. He was hospitalized uh, in Atlanta and his daughter recently announced that he has left the hospital and is now at a rehabilitation facility in Chicago. So just sending well wishes to Jamie Foxx, great comedian, great actor. But we're going to pivot into our first story of the week, which is Bo Jackson and his nearly year-long battle with hiccups. And Bo knows what it's like to have hiccups. I think most of us know what it's like to have hiccups, but he's had hiccups since July, according to an appearance on the local radio show, McElroy and Kublik in the morning. The Heisman Trophy winner said he's tried everything to get rid of the common malady, but so far to no avail. I wasn't there because of dealing with hiccups. I have, I've had the hiccups since last July, and I'm getting the medical procedure done the end of this week, I think, to try to remedy it. But I'm busy at the hospital sitting up with doctors poking me and shining lights down my throat and you probing me every way they can to uh, find out why I got these hiccups. While hiccups may seem like a simple annoyance, the Cleveland Clinic says that they often go away within a few minutes, though they noted that the longest bout lasted 60 years. Men are more likely to get hiccups than women, but the science around what causes them, as well as what makes them go away, 
isn't fully understood by the medical community. Not that any of that has stopped a number of wise tales and home remedies from taking root to treat hiccups. And we were actually talking about that before we hopped on the pod. I, I am one who will, you know, hold their breath and try and focus on something. I've tried the peanut butter trick before, but Lesha, you had something truly unique in terms of trying to get rid of it. Yeah. I mean, so you hold your breath and then I've heard that if you close your nose, like you hold your nose with your hands and also close your ears. So there's no air coming in anywhere. And then someone holds a glass of water uh, to you and you take very tiny sips of the water while you're holding your breath and closing your nose and ears. And it's worked for me. So it definitely works. Um, I don't know if it'll work for everyone, but that's been like my home remedy, I guess, for hiccups. Okay. So uh, that's, that's a new one that just added to the Pantheon. Yeah. Mark, do you have yeah. anything that's, that's worked for you in the past with? I usually just ignore it uh, <laughs> and it goes away on its own. It thank goodness. Its own. So you just uh, neglect feel for Bo. Exactly. <laughs> As I do in many other aspects of my health. <laughs> Yeah, certainly it'll be interesting. Bo Bo had said that he's going in for a procedure to make them go away. So we'll see if that gives him the relief that he needs. Obviously, an all-time great in both the NFL and in the MLB. His career was tragically cut short, but uh, yeah. That's another healthcare story right Right, there. Right, yeah. (laughs) Our second story is the introduction of the virtual girlfriend as the latest development in the future of AI. Snapchat influencer Karen Marjorie created an AI product in which she charges people $1 a minute to chat with the AI version of herself. NBC News reports that there are more than 1,000 current users for the service. Marjorie claims that it's the future of, quote, curing loneliness and is working with psychologists to incorporate cognitive behavioral therapy into the chats, saying it could help undo trauma and other mental health issues. Through Karen AI, Marjorie's also made some serious money. Fortune estimates that she made more than $71,000 in one week. Still, beyond the ethical questions about what effect the technology can have on patients, there's also concern about the AI engaging in, quote, sexually explicit interactions. Marjorie told Insider that the AI is, quote, not programmed to do this and seemed to go rogue, while adding that she and her team were working to prevent this from happening in the future. Now, we're talking about this story kind of almost laying the groundwork for a story that Lesha is going to be writing in the future about talking to psychologists about what purpose this could actually have. You know, AI is certainly having its moment in healthcare, and I think people are looking for what applications it can have across the system. But this is kind of an unusual, but almost kind of expected one, I guess you could say. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, as Mark mentioned earlier, uh, just a few weeks ago, the Surgeon General put out a report saying that loneliness is a public health issue in the U.S. and that there's a very important need to foster social connection more, um, that loneliness can create health problems down the line. Um, And it's just interesting that this woman is claiming this is going to be a cure for loneliness, um, even though people aren't really interacting with a human, they're interacting with an AI Um, So it'll be interesting to see if it actually takes off as a legitimate tool to, I guess, fight loneliness. Yeah, just one thought I had on that. Um, Thank you, Lesha. Um, I immediately thought of, you know, when I think loneliness, I think of the work that Sash and Jane did uh, when he was at Scan Health and and showing that um, how, you know, they addressed loneliness amongst the senior population, um, at Caremore, um, his, uh, health plan, uh, that he was involved with prior to his current role. Um, and he, uh, found that small nudges and, and phone calls ultimately translated into fewer admissions and better health outcomes for the people who are part of the program. However, at the same time, uh, Jane pointed out that while loneliness is not a complicated problem to solve, 
it's not simple work. It's kind of paradoxical in, in the sense that it, um, it's quite complicated uh, when one digs into it. And so I think that simplistically, uh, to, to think that it's a simple, simple problem that can just be addressed with AI at, at once is ambitious, um, but perhaps is a little bit um, reductionist. Uh, and, and, and on top of that, there are um, ethical issues to, uh, to, to using AI in this capacity as well, which I know, Lesha, uh, you were, we were talking about offline that you're going to be digging into that more as well. Yeah, I'm hoping to speak with a medical ethicist and also clinical psychiatrists and psychologists um, to see, you know, whether this woman's pitch is legitimate. Um, and I think it'll be an interesting story to follow. Yeah, we look forward to hearing more on that one. And our final story is around the concept of free births. So the COVID-19 pandemic forced plenty of aspects of the patient care journey to take place at home. But one potentially risky trend involves free births, which have gained traction on TikTok in recent weeks. These videos feature mothers giving birth at home, in bathtubs, in bedrooms or living rooms. Free births have been around since the dawn of humanity and entail the delivery of a baby without medical or midwife assistance. Though generations of women gave birth this way, modern medicine provides a more robust support system that reduces the risk of complications or death during childbirth. Many of the, quote, free birth advocates on TikTok cited a distrust of the medical system and maternal health care in general. While the idea of free births has gained popularity on the social media site, experts worry it could encourage people to make potentially dangerous decisions regarding their pregnancy care. Risks associated with free births include bleeding, failure to progress in labor, and uterine rupture or infection for the mother. Additionally, there could be abnormal presentation, prematurity, cord compression, or cord around the neck of the baby. And, you know, this kind of reminds me of the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago about the DIY dentistry. It feels like, you know, for every kind of goofy, you know, NyQuil chicken story that we find on TikTok, there are these ones that are just so concerning. And, and I know that it's a small group. We were talking about that offline that, you know, this is not a large movement, but there's still people that, you know, go on TikTok and they think, hey, this is how I want to have my baby or this is how I want to do it. And there are those risks, not only for the mother, but certainly for the child too. Right. I mean, it is a small group, but TikTok gives them a platform to kind of um, amplify their their views, I guess. Um, and it's interesting because even before TikTok, um, they had like this group on Facebook. Um, I forget what it was called exactly, but it was shut down back in like 2018 or something um, for posting misinformation. Um, and there was like a child, a baby that actually died um, in in one of the members in the group, I believe. And so that, that Facebook group was shut down. Um, so it's interesting that TikTok is now the new place where they're kind of magnifying their position and... Um, amplifying it, I guess. Does TikTok have a misinformation strategy? They might want one. <laughs> right. Not, not a very effective one. Right. Just given by the things that we talk about on the show. Right. Yeah. Um, just, you know, kind of another point to bring up, and I was digging into one of the articles uh, that Lesha quoted in her story from the BBC, which was talking about the free birthing phenomenon. It was written back in 2022. And they quoted um, a study that was run out of the UK uh, of 1,700 people who were in their third trimester um, or had given birth and their caregivers. And I think 72 out of 1,700 people surveyed said that they had uh, seriously considered free birthing. So a very small percentage, to your point, Jack, uh, that seems to be magnified here on, on TikTok. But the reasons why they were um, you know, considering it uh, ranged from 
things like uh, logistics, you know, an inability to access care. And that was obviously something that was common in, in 2020, you know, amidst the lockdowns, at least in the UK, this article was saying that uh, the midwifery services kind of sometimes were not available. So it wasn't possible to, to have births um, outside, you know, with proper supervision, as well as uh, dissatisfaction with the current care offered, uh, an inherent belief in the undisturbed physiological processes of birth. But uh, the phenomenon, as it's you know been cast on TikTok, I don't see those reasons you know being being given. Um, certainly, the logistics aspect is, does not really hold true anymore. And uh, again, as as this article makes makes it clear, um, although free birthing is legal, at least in the UK, it is considered a uh, quote unquote non mainstream and stigmatized birthing decision, and for good reason. There are real medical downsides to not being uh, having access uh, when 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 one needs it and, it and it really does remind me a lot i know we've had plenty of reporting done on like the anti-vax movement and stuff and there are very justifiable concerns that you can have about the healthcare system about the various players and stuff but when you start to go into these different actions or activities that can not only harm you but potentially harm others that's where it becomes so much more concerning is saying yes you can express your distrust your dissatisfaction with the system but are you going to really put yourself at greater risk by kind of going the other way it's that that whiplash effect that's mm-hmm. that's very concerning at least from you know somebody going to been, extremes yeah yeah somebody that's been reporting on this stuff for years so obviously we can't end every episode on the the happiest note as we do with some of these other stories but obviously it's an important one to highlight and i would encourage any of our uh listeners if they want to get the full story then go to our website and read lesh's reporting on the trend and and see some of these videos that have been uh going around on tiktok in recent weeks and you can find that at mmm-online.com that's it for this week the mmm podcast is produced by bill fitzpatrick gordon failer lesha bushak and jack o'brien our theme music is by sizzy m Sohn. rate review and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts new episodes out every week and be sure to check out our website mmm-online.com for the top news stories in pharma marketing